0: We've entitled this morning's message, as you can see from the bulletin, Agape Love. And that's just a word that comes from the Greek word there for love. There are a number of different words that are actually used in relationship to love. There's emotional type of love, there's a friendship type of love, and there's a deep-rooted love. And that's to make it simple in the beginning here, that's really the concept behind Agape Love. But I want to, first of all, concentrate on this particular verse as we get ready to expound and exergete the passage to you. This may be, maybe, not positive, but it may be the most well-known verse of Scripture throughout the world. This may be the verse that in God's grace He has used most to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to salvation. I don't think that's an understatement in either one of those categories. It has been referred to many, including Martin Luther, as a mini-gospel, just in the verse alone. In fact, Martin Luther went so far as to say John chapter 3, verse 16 is a mini-Bible. That the entire Bible's right there, summarized in one verse. James M. Boyce said this: there is hardly a place in the world to which the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, that this verse has not become almost instantly known. End quote. It's interesting because James Boyce came across a little card one time that someone had printed on John chapter 3, verse 16. And I want to read to you what it said. As James Montgomery Boyce found this card, it read the following. It said the verse was arranged almost word by word down one side of the card and on the other side of the card, across from the words of the verse, was a list of descriptive phrases, one for each part. The person looking at the card would read this, he says God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act his only begotten son the greatest gift that whosoever the greatest opportunity believeth the greatest simplicity in him the greatest attraction should not perish the greatest promise but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. And then over it all, revealing a spiritual perception that was most accurate in James Boyce's opinion, because there was this title, Christ, the greatest gift. I could probably walk away right now after just reading that card is a summarization of this particular verse. There is also a famous story, just to understand how important this verse is, related to D.L. Moody and Henry Morehouse. Some of you may have heard it. Certainly some of you will be familiar with certainly D.L. Moody. And it was related to this verse. Moody, who traveled a lot and went to Britain often, Was there one time and he came across a young at the time English preacher by the name of Henry Morehouse and when he came across him he said to him if you ever come to America he said come to Chicago and I will give you a chance to preach well Moody had never heard this man preach before that is, Morehouse. And he was merely being polite when he offered that to him, thinking that possibly he would never come. But sometime later, while he was home, he received a telegram that said the following, and I quote Have just arrived in New York, will be in Chicago Sunday, Morehouse. Moody was perplexed as to what he should do, and To make things complicated, he was just about to go out of town on a series of messages, and all of this is a true story. And I quote from Moody himself, he said this, oh my, (laughs) he said, here I am about to be gone this Sunday, Morehouse is coming, and I've promised to let him preach. So what did he do? First of all, he called his wife, then he called the leaders of the church, and he got them all together. And he said this, and I quote, I think that I should let him preach once. So let him preach once, and then if the people enjoy him, put him on again. And then Moody went away for his week of meetings. When he returned, he said to his wife, how did the young preacher do? And I quote, oh, he's a better preacher than you are. That's a, that's a direct quote. <laughs> he is telling sinners that God loves them. Moody said, that's not right. God does not love sinners. And this is a true statement. Well, she said, go hear him for yourself. And he, he replied with, what? Do you mean to tell me that he's still preaching? Yes. He's been preaching all week and he's only had one verse for his text. It's John chapter 3 verse 16. Well, Moody went to the meeting, morehouse, got up and began by saying this, and I quote, "I have been hunting for a text all week, and I have not been able to find a better text than John 3:16, so I think we will just talk about it one more time." So we did. And afterward, Moody said that night that it was the first time that he clearly understood the greatness of God's love, end quote. So it's a rather powerful verse that we come to today. There are more stories that could go on, and we could just spend our whole morning dealing with stories, but that's not the point related to this verse, and I don't doubt for one minute that several of you could share stories. I personally could. The night I got saved, I happened to come in to the study of John chapter 3 by God's sovereign grace when I came in and got saved that evening. But I won't give you all of that detail this morning. However, understanding it, we must remember this, and I would ask that everybody, without exception, listen to this that we must understand it in its context. We drill that into people. Context, 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 and then frequently divert ourselves when it's convenient from a context. We are not here to make this verse fit anyone's systematic theology. Systematic theology is good and has a place. However, Any time we open up the Word of God, and I ask that your ears be wide open here, any time we open up the Word of God, we are here to try to understand what the writer said. We are here to try to understand what God said, not what man said. We are here to understand what the author behind this has told us. So in the context, let us remember that there is a conversation that is going on with Nicodemus And after dealing with a couple of things that we have already addressed in chapter 3, he has dealt with the necessity of the new birth. You must be born again. There is no question. You must be born again. Narrow, absolutely. Necessary, absolutely. Secondly, he has dealt with the nature of the new birth. This is a second birth. It is not a natural birth like my newest grandchild just had and the grandchild had nothing to do with that. But we're dealing with a new birth, a birth from above, a spiritual birth. Something that must take place. We have been equipped physically to live in this world with our first birth and we can live in this world. To be equipped for the world after this, we must have a new birth. No question about it in this passage. And last week when we were together, we learned about the means by which that new birth takes place. And that is faith. A person must believe. And that's what the issue is. And hold on to that one. He then illustrated it, and it's important for us to remember this. He illustrated everything that he was teaching. That is the necessity of the new birth the nature of the new birth, and the means of the new birth in verses 14 and 15, our text last week. And you'll notice if you scan it, and you can look at it as I'm preaching, as Moses, it's comparative, lifted up the serpent, I want you to notice, as he lifted up that serpent, the issue there was those who looked, that is anyone who looked upon the serpent that had been lifted up, And anyone that had been bitten and affected and were dying would be saved by looking upon the serpent. That is, they would live. There was no restriction. If they were bitten, they could look and they could live. And the comparison is just as that is true, so too with Jesus Christ, verses 14 and 15. We find out that whoever believes, whoever looks upon, he who believes will have eternal life, verse 15. That's clearly said. That is clearly the illustration of last week. Faith is the means by which salvation is appropriated to the individual. Without faith, there is no salvation. Just as without the cross there is no salvation. Now we come to verse 16. And what do we come to? We come to the reason or we come to the explanation. You cannot bypass that. You come to the reason or you come to the explanation for which Jesus Christ was lifted up. And to give it to you in simplicity, you have it in the title of the message, it is this. God's love Here's the answer right now. It is God's love. He starts with the word gar or for. It is an explanation. An explanation referring back to the illustration in explaining that lifted up. And don't forget this, you theologians. All of those who were referred to in verse 14, all of them without exception, were Israelites. No exception. Anyone who had been bitten, anyone, Moses said, who had been bitten and looked, lived. And anyone who believes, verse 15, also will live. So first, let's deal with the source. Let's begin to pull apart the verse, the explanation. The source first of all, is right there before your eyes. For God, He's the source. Now, who or what is God? That is important to us today. Listen, don't take this for granted. We're dealing with God as the source of this salvation. And there are many today that have determined in their own mind who God is. Some of the things you're going to hear this morning are not appreciated by many. But the reality is, this is not the God that we make up in our own mind. When he says God, he is talking about the God who is revealed in Holy Script. He is talking about the God, very God, that's revealed in the Bible. He is talking, as we have sung about this morning, the God who has unseen. You haven't seen him, but he has chosen By his own sovereign decree, he has chosen to reveal himself to man. How has he chosen to do that? He has chosen by his own decree through creation. Though man would suppress what he learns about creation and push God out of the picture, nevertheless, God has chosen through creation to reveal himself to mankind. And anyone that knows even the birth of a child, if you really study, the more you study, the more you understand, and the more you get technical, the more you see the hand of God in the birth even of a child or in plants and animals. But he has also chosen by his own decree to reveal himself through the written word. He began to speak to Adam, he spoke to Moses, he spoke to Noah. He spoke to the prophets of old and through the New Testament writers so that his word could be recorded so that we could have an understanding of who he is. He also determined to reveal himself through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, don't take it lightly, he has also chosen to reveal himself through believers. And I could expand on every one of those for the next month and a half to two months. You don't think so? I could. So what are we saying? When we talk about God right away in the verse, who is he? Let me summarize it. He is the sovereign one of the universe. He is the only one who is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is righteous. He is holy. All of these terms are going to be vital in just a moment. He is righteous. He is holy. He is loving. He is also, listen, personal. He is also able to be known by that which he has revealed himself to us. He is technically and properly called in Scripture the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I'm talking God, that's who I'm talking about. That's who God is talking about. He is the one and the only true God. There is none else. He is the triune God. Not three gods, but one God in three divine persons. So when it says for God, that's who he's talking about. Why all of that emphasis, Pastor Dan? Listen to me. We are not talking about the God of any of the following we are not talking about the God of the Unitarians we are not talking about the God of the Mormons and as I say these things and it may even be an insult to some of you when you know what they believe they do not fit the God of the Bible it is not the God of the Mormons it is not the God of Christ's science It is not the God of Scientology. It is not the God of Wicca. It is not the God of Baha'i. It is not the God of the New Age. It is not the God of Hinduism. It is not the God of Buddhism. It is not the God of Muslims. It is not the God of Hare Krishna. It is not the God of transcendental meditation. It is not the God of spiritualism. None of those have the right God. You say, well, who are you? It's the word of God that's revealed God. And it is the word of God where we go to to find out who God's like. And he's not the God of man's own imagination. Including money money pleasure and even the exaltation of man himself it's the God who I've just disclosed to you as the one true God as revealed by himself to the world through the word you say pastor Dan that's not inclusivism exactly that's not pluralism exactly that's not multiculturalism exactly And that's not idolatry either. All of those other gods that are being forced on us, that's what it is. And we're being told when we speak of God, that he's this God and that God. Listen, my friend, to know the God of the universe, you must know it as described and revealed in the word of God. We're talking about the God that has created all things, listen in seven literal days you say now you're ancient now you're really out in left field let me just give you two verses this cannot be underemphasized. we're talking god colossians chapter one listen to it you can mark it down if you want colossians chapter one verse 16 for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. That's the God we're talking about. And in case you didn't miss the other part of it, let me read to you Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. Listen carefully. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and he rested on the seventh therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy that's just two verses that summarize what I said it is the God who has created everything and he did it in seven days it is that God that we're talking about that's loving here in John chapter 3 it's not just any God it's the God of all creation It's a jealous God who's jealous for his reputation. Well, what did he do? It says in John 3.16 now that God so loved. He loved. I already told you it's the word agape. This is a love of choice. This is a love that is undeserved. This is a love that is unconditional. These terms have been put on it many, many times. It is a love of action. It is a love... To the unloving. It is a love of enemies. It is a love that's undeserving. It's a love that's self-sacrificing. That's what we're talking about. How much of love did, did God have? So, it's only two letters in the English language. You describe it to me. I can't. It is beyond words. God didn't just love the world. We'll deal with the world in a second. He so loved the world You read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 today that you saw the word great. God's love is great. God's love is beyond words. No wonder salvation is described in Scripture as that which is unexplainable, in a sense. That's how much God's love is there. People today are still saying, where is the love of God in this world? Listen. It's easy to see. You look at the cross. You say, I don't know. I don't... That's, you know, that's your opinion. Really? Take the Bible and read it yourself. God's love was seen in the cross of Calvary. Now, we come to what some of you have been waiting for. Who or whom did he love? It says, for God so loved what? The world... But what do you mean the world? What do you mean God so loved the world? Let me just say a couple of things this morning that are vital to your understanding. There is a debate among scholars today, including many godly men, as to what is meant by this word world. For example, does it mean everyone that God loved everyone without exception? Or does it mean everyone in the sense of everyone without distinction? meaning Jew and Gentile. Well, let me tell you a couple of things this morning. and Listen to it, please. All of it. Now, it is true that the Word of God uses the word world in many different ways. In fact, it's used that way in John. Let me just give you a couple of my own, and I had a long list as I studied this out. Satan is called the ruler of this world in John chapter 12. The world, we're told, hates believers, John chapter 15. The world, we're told, in hyperbole, listen, the world, we're told, in hyperbole, and that's easy to understand in the context, in John chapter 12, went after him in its context. Well, to save you from all the things that I could present to you, let me just tell you what Leon Morris said. After spending two pages of documenting various usages of John's term, the world, he says this, and I quote, the word thus has many shades of meaning. This diversity must be kept in mind in studying this gospel because the boundaries between the classifications are not hard and fast. John moves freely from one to another and even uses the term in ways that may evoke more than one of its possible meanings. And all he's saying to you there is you need to look at the context. The context. Also, when it comes to explaining election, I need to say this to you, and God's sovereign choice, we do come to such passages as this. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's found in Romans. There is absolutely no problem understanding that in its context. It is clear. The context explains that when it comes to election, God elects, period. And he uses the illustration of Jacob and Esau. We understand the context. What is the use in the context here? Is that the use of the context? Is it in that sense of Romans? Let me tell you right away, but I want you to listen to everything I have to say. I don't think so. All those who were dying were told to look to the serpents. How many are dying and in need of salvation? All men and nobody argues about that. I don't know of one theologian that doesn't say that all are in need of salvation. How do they get saved? By looking to the savior. Let me quote again from Leon Morris. Here's what he says. His life is not, excuse me, his love is not confined confined to a national group or spiritual elite. It is a love that proceeds from the fact that God is love. 1 John chapter 4. It is his nature to love. He loves people because he's the kind of God that he is. John tells us that his love is shown in the gift of his Son. Of this gift, Oppenberg uh, finally says, the Son of God's gift to the world, and moreover, it is the gift, meaning the gift, one and only, there are no divine gifts apart from or outside of the one-born Son. It should be noticed that God's love is for the world. In recent times some scholars have argued that John sees God's love as only for the elect are God's believers but here in the context it is plain that God loves the world." And I say amen to that statement. It seems best to me to understand the word world in the context, in its simplest understanding, just the way he wrote it. Ask a child, ask a believer, who have not been indoctrinated by some man's thinking, and they will understand this word world in its context to mean world. And to put it very bluntly to you, I have the greatest respect for and have been blessed abundantly by such people as Dr. Johnson, Sproul, Kennedy, and Warfield. But I do not have to answer to them, and neither do you. God's word says world, and it best fits the context, and I will stand before God and answer to him, not to man. What it says there is, for God so loved the world, and I take it exactly as what it says. Why did he love the world? Well, he goes on in the context. How did he demonstrate it? He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave. God took action. And true agape love takes action. It doesn't just say they love someone. What good does it do for you to tell your children you love them and do nothing about it? What good does it do for you to tell your spouse, I love you, and then not demonstrate it by your actions? The world is absolutely saturated with that type of love. God demonstrated his love. His love. How? He gave. That speaks of a free gift. You've heard of salvation being a free gift. It is. God so loved the world, we can't even of that, That he gave, it's free. The salvation of mankind, the salvation offered by God, it's a gift. Listen to me. As you study the scriptures, it's interesting to notice this. That God stopped Abraham in sacrificing his only begotten son. But what God stopped Abraham from doing, God himself did. He did not stop Himself. He sent His only begotten Son, and He didn't stop. He let Him go to the cross. His only begotten, what do you mean? His unique. You've heard me say that, explain that term already in John. That's what it means. What do you mean, unique Son? He was fully God, fully man. Does the world want to hear that? No. Does the world want to hear that Jesus Christ is the only possible way No, they don't. But it doesn't matter because that's what they need to hear. They need to hear it, and you and I have the message. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the only one who was without sin, the only one who was the adequate and satisfactory sacrifice, listen, to satisfy the justice and righteous demands of a holy God that we just talked about that's found in the word of God. He is the only one that could satisfy that payment. He is the only one that God himself could send, and that is himself. That is why Jesus Christ took on flesh, that which was not common to him. He took upon himself. And then we find this, that God gave his only begotten son. What did he do? Romans 5 says that he died for the ungodly, even when we were ungodly when we were sinners, when we were enemies. That's how love is demonstrated when people are enemies, when people are ungodly. And that's what God did. He didn't save us when we were perfect because none of us are. He sent Jesus Christ and loved us when we were enemies of God, when we hated God. Something to chew on. What is the means of appropriation again? And listen to me. This is the qualifier in the context, not the word world. The qualifier comes right here. Let the text speak for itself. That purpose, whoever believes, that's a good translation. Some are reading whosoever believeth in him. All we could translate that, whoever is believing, based upon the tenses there. The point is it's narrow. We've seen that broad is the 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 area of God's love. Does he love people in some ways more than others and will he show that love certainly to believers for years to come, eons to come, for eternity? The answer is yes, of course. But it doesn't change the fact that God loved the world. The reason it'll narrow down later is because of verse 16, that whoever believes, that is faith. This is the qualifier. That's the qualifier in the context. There's got to be genuine faith. This is not dealing with universal salvation. You can't adequately accuse people of that. That's not what we're saying here. It is not universal because only the ones that believe will benefit from that. Only the ones who believe will have appropriated it. Is it then a human work? I'm addressing everybody today. Is it just a human work? Of course not. It's God's work from beginning to end. You say, Pastor Dan, you don't understand Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Yes, I do, I believe. And I do understand the difference between the neuter and the feminine there in the context. That antecedent is not easy to determine. And in its context, is best determined by the whole ball of wax. What? Salvation. Which includes faith. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the whole package of salvation. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that told us that the Father must draw. We know that, John chapter 6, verse 44. We know in Acts chapter 13 that as are many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. So who's going to come to believe? Those who God has chosen, no question about it. The offer to the world that you and I have, the message that John gave and I can give with all assurance is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if you're alive as a human being and God is working in your heart and you hear that, you must realize that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There isn't a human being alive. As God looked down from heaven, it tells us in the Psalms and also in the New Testament. Old and new alike. He saw none righteous. You say, I don't know. I haven't gone out and murdered anybody. Really? Have you ever hated anybody in your heart? Well, you know, there's a few people. That's murder. You say, I've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after another male or female? You've committed adultery. I've never lied. You just did. Okay? I could go on and on. The point is this. We know in our heart... And you know what goes on in your own life. And by the way, that's the depths of God's love. Is there any sin that's too great for God to forgive? None. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient. There is no one who could say, I'm too great a sinner. All you can do is say, be merciful to God. Be merciful to me, O God, a sinner and bow down in repentance and say, I have nothing to bring, because that's what salvation is. We have nothing to offer God. We don't have anything that we can do to purchase it. We can't be religious enough. You can't go to church. Some of those religions that I purposely mentioned this morning, there are people that are more dedicated than Christians, and they are going out of their way to commit their life to this, live in mountaintops commit themselves to constant prayer. Why? Because they're trying to earn salvation. As committed as they are, they will never get it unless it's by faith. Because that's God's plan. God, the true God of the Bible, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that the means by which it takes place is faith. And it isn't just believing facts we've already seen there. You can believe a lot of facts about Jesus Christ, That he came, that he died on the cross, that he rose again, that he was a good teacher, that he was a good man. That's what Nicodemus thought. Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no man can even do what you've done. Except, excuse me, God be with him. Nicodemus was an older man. He was a religious man. He was a committed man. He was a scholar. He was an intelligent human being and he wasn't saved. Because even though he had a bunch of facts, he hadn't come to where his heart would be dependent upon just solely the work of Jesus Christ. When we're talking this faith, we're talking of a person who has cast all his faith on Christ for their eternal destiny. In John chapter 6, he says, All that the Father had given me will come to me, and all who come to me I will in no wise cast out verse 37 i believe if the lord's working in your heart come to the lord jesus christ he's the one that god sent he is the expression of god's love oh we think of certain house fires or children or job situations and we're wondering where god's love god's love is so far beyond that that he's concerned about your eternal soul And his action was taken in the cross of Calvary. Not just that babe in Bethlehem. He grew as a man and his eyes were set at the cross. Because in there he bore the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where it happens. When you have faith in him and you believe on him, these terms that we use. What we're dealing with is a new creation a person that is not their own, a life that has changed, a life that has committed their eternal destiny to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what are the results? Verse 16. There's a negative and a positive. The negative side is should not perish. You mean there really is a hell? Absolutely. How many will find it? Many. Why? Broad is the way. That's pluralism. That's multiculturalism. Come on in. Let's all join. Everybody's got their own ideas, and they're all leading where? To hell. God's idea, and only God's idea. Listen, if God created everything, and he did, and God had everything to do with even our first birth, and he did, used your parents, yes, why should we be surprised to see that God has everything to do with our second birth? Why should it be our surprise to us that we have to look to that same God? Wouldn't you want to get it directly from him? How does he say that we can be with him for all eternity? You see, all the way back to that story that you were told when you were a little boy or a girl, that Adam and Eve were there and they were cast out of the garden. They were actually driven out. That was the first automobile. That's a side. Sorry about that. They were driven out of the garden. But seriously, though. When you see that, when you see that they were taken out of the and why? They could no longer be in the presence of God because of sin, because God's a holy God. How do we ever get back into his presence? Only by him initiating the action. Only by him coming to earth, taking on flesh, going to the cross, and paying the penalty for sin. And then rising from the dead, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Unfortunately, there will be many in hell. And we're given a glimpse in Scripture where one got to hell and said, I got five brothers back on the earth. Just let somebody come back from the dead. I don't want them to come to this place. It was a person that didn't believe such a place existed, and they found themselves in it. The Lord says they have the Scriptures. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe the one gets sent back from the dead. Or you say, oh, yes. Jesus Christ come back from the dead and there's still people that are only cursing with his name not believing on him. But the positive side my friend. But rather than perish end of the verse have present subjunctive what? Eternal life. What kind of life is that exactly? what it says just like world is exactly what it says it's eternal it's eternal life it is forever it is living in the presence of God does life and listen I've done a lot of funerals in my life and I have had some where the people believed that that was it you go into the grave and it's all over that is no such thing folks All of us will go beyond the grave. Many will go into eternal punishments. You say, I don't believe God's like that. That's because you don't understand what I said in the beginning. The God of the Bible. Because God is love, and he expressed it in coming to pay the penalty and price for sin. But he's also just and righteous. He cannot, like our courts today, overlook justice. He demands it and the demands were met in Jesus Christ. And whoever, anyone that is dead, anyone that is spiritually dead, and look to him as God's working in the heart and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be saved. Our prayer is that you look to him. The Lord Jesus Christ offers eternal life to as many as will believe. With man who is dead, with man Who by nature doesn't understand the things of God, it seems foolishness. He could not come. That's why God has to do the work. But the message doesn't change. The message is that Jesus Christ came into the world and died and rose again so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, not spend eternity in hell, but have everlasting life. That's now and it's for all eternity. That's amazing. You'll have it now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've come here today and have never trusted in Christ, maybe you've cursed with his name. You've never come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. My appeal is the same one of scriptures. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In him and in him alone is salvation. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Come to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognize that as a sinner, you can do nothing. And you will not perish, but have everlasting life. Fellow believers, you've trusted in Christ. Let the verse stand for what it says. Number one. Number two, go home this week and chew on two letters. God so loved you. So, that's how much he loves you. Now go love others as Christ has loved you. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you and praise you for the word of God. We pray, Father, and thank you that you loved us so much that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ. That, Father, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, you know every thought of every person in this room. To some, this may sound foolish. To some, this may found absolutely, sound absolutely ridiculous that it could only be found in Jesus Christ. But, Father, there is not a person in this room from the youngest to the oldest, male or female, rich or poor, who will not one day die and stand before you. And as they do... The only thing that's going to count is what you said. What you have said is the method of salvation, and it's only found in Jesus Christ. As we must answer to you, we pray that you'd help each one to come to the place that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be saved. For those of us who come today as believers, we pray that you'd help us to understand how great your love is, the depth of your love you you so loved us even when others didn't, And, Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of eternal life. Lord, help us to share that love one with another and with the world who might even hate us. The world will hate us, we were told, because it hated you first. Help us, Father, to love them with the love that Christ has had for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.